Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Chris Maybe. It's appropriate that we consider the Lord's Supper in detail on this occasion today as we welcome seven new communicant members to the table for their first communion. What a great day. And so by way of introduction here at the outset, let me ask you some questions that you might all have been asking, maybe even now. What is the Lord's Supper? What is it? What are we doing when we take and eat and take and drink? Why do we celebrate it together in worship, typically after the preached Word of God, and not just practice it sort of ceremonially at home when we're at home with our family or maybe even alone? Why is celebrating a new class of communicants a good thing? What's the big deal? Is the Spirit of Christ or Christ's actual physical body really present with us when we participate in the sacrament by faith? What do you believe we're doing or is being done to us and for us when we partake in this sacrament together by faith? How often should we take communion? Should we do it every week? Once a year? Once a quarter? Or how about never at all, huh? I mean, after all, isn't the Word of God, particularly the preached Word of God, enough for us, right? Isn't the preached Word enough? There's a lot of questions we might have, mysteries to many of us about the Lord's Supper. But before we begin in earnest, let me perk your interest a bit further with a quote from a voice from the past. Robert Bruce, who was a 16th century Scottish theologian, and I don't mean Robert the Bruce, Right, You may recall from the movie Braveheart, right? He was the Scottish guy that turned in Mel Gibson, who was William Wallace, to King Edward and resulted in him getting killed. That was two centuries before, and I'm not talking about Robert the Bruce. I'm talking about Robert Bruce, pastor guy, 16th century, okay? Listen to this quote. You don't get any different Christ in the Lord's Supper than you do in the preaching of the Word. You don't get a better Christ in the Lord's Supper than you do in the preaching of the Word. But you might get the same Christ in the Lord's Supper better. Well, lots of questions to think about, and perhaps some, maybe even all of us, have wondered these things as we come to today's service today. And it's our goal here at NPC for all of us to come to the Lord's table well and profitably, not remotely or flippantly, but Christocentrically, repentfully, faithfully, productively. Seven Lees. And it's my hope that during the next 30 minutes or so, all of us will be enlightened by the Spirit and come to a greater understanding of what the sacrament is and is not as we seek to answer these questions and more. Friends, when we partake in the Lord's Supper with repentant and faithful hearts, we really and truly receive and are nourished by the promise and fulfillment of the love of Jesus Christ. In today's message, I hope to encourage the winsome and joyful participation of the faithful in the Lord's Supper in three parts as we learn why, number one, 
The Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of God's promises from the past. Number two, the Lord's Supper is a realization of God's promises for us in the present. Finally, number three, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of God's promises for our future. Now in sequence, number one, the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of God's promises from the past. Now we're supposed to be baptized once, and in our tradition, typically you're inaugurated into the covenant community. We baptize infants, but we, as you know, we also baptize adults. In fact, 40% of Presbyterian Church in America baptisms are in adults, if you can believe it. But I recently you know, was, uh, uh, went on a conference here to Louisville this past week, which is a conference mostly of Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians. And uh, I found out one of the Reformed Baptists had been baptized three times, uh, once as an infant, then when he came to faith in, in college, and then when he felt commissioned to a particular ministry later, right? So three times. And I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying we're supposed to be baptized once and once only into the community of faith uh, in the covenant community. But for young Christians, like our communicants, who are going to partake in the Lord's Supper for the first time today, you might take the Lord's Supper 500 times during the course of your life. And praise God, I hope that our young communicants do. And because of the frequency of the celebration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, particularly for churches that do so often, we don't make much of it. Often, don't we? We don't make that much of it. And yet Jesus exclaimed in the last book of the Bible, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Sadly, evangelical churches have tended over time to minimize the use of the biblical means of grace that were given in Scripture, which are positioned in purpose to grow our faith, to worship the living and true God and commune together as the community of faith. And we've jettisoned those for other means and methods, which while trendy, are typically only fleetly helpful, fleetingly helpful. You know, the Lord's Supper has become an afterthought, right, for many times, many circumstances, right? Something that's done by simple necessity or only on occasion rather than with frequency, joy, and enthusiasm. You see, friends, when we partake in the Lord's Supper together during worship, it's an occasion that does something to the fellowship of God's people, does something in and for us. You know, while God makes a covenant with His people, He gives them a sign to remind them that He will, he will fulfill all that He's promised. And in the Lord's Supper, we receive a sign in the bread and the juice that we eat. It's tangible. We can see it. We can touch it. We can smell it. We can taste it, right? And when we take it by faith, it's an actual means of grace that helps us embody the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For in it, God promises afresh to His people to fulfill in Christ His purposes in creation, to redeem sinful men and women so that they can commune with Him in paradise when He returns His co-regents. And the sign, the sign, the stuff, really means nothing, right? It doesn't add anything to the promises of God. God tells us in this sacrament, I promised you, and I'm sealing it with this ordinance. Let me put it some, somewhat differently, um, hopefully for an analogy that helps explain this. When we get married, what do we do? We promise our marriage partner with vows. 
We promise things to our spouse in our vows, right? And we seal it with a ring. Most of us wear the ring every day with joy until we die. The ring represents the sign and seal of our love for our covenant partner in marriage, our commitment to them and theirs to us. And for those that think the supper's overwrought, maybe we make too much of it, that we participate in it too often. Maybe they think the Word of God is enough alone. You know, I mean, I've heard people have told me in the past, you know, from outside of our church in this tradition, can't we just come to worship and sing a couple of popular songs, maybe throw in the national anthem and hear a 15-minute message on a current event and go eat lunch? We don't need to take the Lord's Supper, right? And if we do, we don't need to do it often. It just takes too much time. Right? We're busy. It takes too much time. After all, we're reading our Bibles. Dave preaches the Gospel every week here. And he does. Praise God. And if that belief happens to be yours, I hope you'll listen intently and maybe come to a different conclusion by the end today. You see, friends, the Word of God is not enough for us alone. I'd be the first in line to, to admit its primacy of place. And I, God knows I love to teach and preach it, even if not well. But it's not enough for us alone. Not because I say so, but because Jesus does. When He commands His disciples, do this in remembrance of Me. And God using signs and seals of things signified signifies, you know, this model recurs throughout redemptive history, culminating in the sacraments of baptism in the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, don't they? Recall the sign for Noah was a rainbow after the flood. The, the sign for Moses and the people in the desert, the Israelites, after being delivered from their bondage in Egypt and receiving the law was a sign of the Sabbath, right? The sign for David was the throne of the king. And Jesus tells us in this sacrament that it's a new covenant. Now all of those saving promises of God find their ultimate fulfillment in me, Jesus says. All the Old Testament covenantal promises, signs, and seals find their ultimate yes in Jesus Christ. And Jesus gives us a sign of this new covenant in the Lord's Supper. Here now in the bread and juice, Jesus says, are the signs that signify the promises of my saving work for you, Christian, for me, for all of us that love the Lord, you see. These signs seal and convey to us and confirm in us that Jesus is ruling now. That Jesus has paid the price for our sins when we put our trust in Him. That He's going to return to restore all things. You know, the Word of God works in the same way, doesn't it? Right? You know, we got a bunch of letters here formed into words that by themselves really don't mean anything, do they? What happens in the preaching of the Word? God communicates to us through the Spirit the signs and words that seal our faith, that strengthen our resolve in a troubled time, and that give us peace in a future that's certain. Ordinances like the Lord's Supper are visible words. The bread and wine are visible and tangible words. We have the keys to interpret them through the power of the Holy Spirit who superintends the worship service and the assembly of God's believers when we're together. He superintends the assembly in a way that's different from how He superintends us as individuals. You know, the Lord's Supper originally was a drama that had its roots not only in the upper room experience, which we heard about in Luke 22, which I just read, right? That's Jesus' last supper in the upper room in Jerusalem, His Passion Week before He's crucified. 
right? But the roots go all the way back to the Old Testament celebration of the Passover. And the immediate context of the first Lord's Supper was Jesus' celebration of that Passover. Let's look again at the text from Luke 22, and I'm going to just use some of the verses here, uh, which I think will help uh, emphasize the point. Starting in verse 7 of Luke 22, then came the day of the unleavened bread of the feast on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this commanding, do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, and it's clear that the apostolic church or the first generation of Christians after Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, the father saw a link between the death of Jesus Christ and the Old Testament Passover celebration. Why? Because Jesus did. Even John the Baptist, as Dave told us last, no, a couple weeks ago, I think, in his message, right? The greatest preacher of all time, John the Baptist, he had his finger on the pulse of the moment, exclaiming at Jesus' baptism from John's gospel in John 1, 29, where he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet its real origin goes all the way back to Yahweh's calling of Moses after he delivered the Israelites by his grace from the oppression of Pharaoh and their enslavement in Israel for over 400 or in Egypt for over 400 years, right? God directed Moses to go to both Pharaoh and to the people of God with the very word of God. You know, and for those of us that have spent some time studying the Bible, we know that there were 10 plagues in all, right? <laughs> but it's in the first 9 plagues that we see an escalation of the drama and the conflict between Moses and Pharaoh. Remember the story? Why did it take 10 plagues? Did you ever ask yourself that? One plague would befall the Egyptians, and then Pharaoh would relent and say, okay, you guys can leave. Get out of here. And then as soon as the phrase left his lips, or, uh, Yahweh hardened his heart so that then he would draw them back in and double their burden, right? Now you've got to make double the bricks. Nine times. Nine times. Nine different plagues. It didn't work. Why? It was to make it very clear to the people of Israel that their redemption was from the grace and hand of God and not Pharaoh. And the Lord gave explicit instructions to Moses about how, by God's grace, the people of God would escape the tenth plague, the final plague God had planned, and to eat the Passover meal. From Exodus chapters 12, starting in verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I'll pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." And this is critical because we know that the sacraments of the New Testament are understood in the life of the church as both signs and seals of things that are extremely important. 
A sacrament gives a dramatic sign that points beyond itself to some truth of redemption that's true, that's crucial for us as the people of God, right? The sign of this ritual was really a sign of deliverance, sign of redemption, because it meant that the people of God, the Israelites, would not be under the wrath of God. And we know the rest of the story, right? The, Israel, the tenth plague came. God passed his judgment. Pharaoh relented. He released them. They went across the Red Sea and the river. The sea swallowed up. Pharaoh and his men, and they went into the desert for 40 years, right? The Israelites did go out and worship God in the sacred mountain after their release, but as a perpetual remembrance of their release from Egypt, every year thereafter, the people of Israel obeyed the institution of Passover. So hopefully this is making some sense to you. So in 1446, many theologians think God worked through Moses with the plagues to release the people from their captivity in Egypt and into the desert. Jesus redirects our thinking about the Passover feast in all the Gospel accounts in about 33 A.D. Every year from 1446 to 33 A.D., they celebrated the Passover some 1,479 times, to be exact, if, the, if, the, if the, the years are right, right? They gathered in their homes. They ate the food and bitter herbs. They drank the wine, all of which they did to remember the salvation God had wrought for them in the land of Egypt. Have, you ever, have any of you ever been to a Jewish Passover feast? It's, it's interesting. And uh, about thir- 32 years ago, to be exact, um, one of my old partners, I was a medical student at the time, one of my old partners invited me to his house in the temple to partake in the festival of the Passover and to feast. It was fun, but it was kind of sad, too, um, at the same time. You know, every year they follow the Exodus 12 text particularly, thankful to God for who they are as Israelites, hoping for the coming Messiah disbelieving that Jesus is the Christ. And it's here in this Jewish tradition when Jesus celebrated His final Passover with His disciples that He departed from the standard liturgy in the middle of the Passover celebration. Right? He added a new meaning to Passover when He took the unleavened bread, attaching a new significance to it when He said, this is My body which is broken for you. In essence, Jesus was saying, I'm the Passover. I'm the Paschal Lamb. I'm the one that will be sacrificed for you. This is my blood being marked over the door of your life that you'll escape the wrath of God. You see, friends, there's an intrinsic organic link between the Passover of the Old Testament and Jesus' redemptive work on the cross for us. Which is at least in part of the reason why Jesus commands His disciples saying, Do this in remembrance of me. Do it in remembrance of me. To the extent that our celebration of the Lord's Supper is a remembrance, the focus is on what took place in the past. But we also know that partaking in the Lord's Supper as a community of faith helps us tangibly realize and receive God's grace for us in the present. Which leads us to part two of the message. And the Lord's Supper is a realization of God's promises in the present. When we look at the meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper in the life of our community, 
we come to understand that the sacrament applies to all three dimensions of time. All three dimensions of time. Pastor Dave has told us that in the words that he provides for us after preaching, before he gets into the words of institution and fences the table and prays to separate uh, the elements before we take the Lord's Supper. You might recall that. It has an influence on our thinking and belief system from the past, the present, and what we believe about the future, right? And we've thought about how the meal is a sign and seal of God's promises from the past. We now want to think about rightly about how the Lord's Supper is a realization of those promises for us now in the present. And I hope to do so by exploring three purposes for the Lord's Supper for us in the present. Number one, it's an expression of the faithful's communion with Jesus Christ. Number two, it's a demonstration of our unity with each other and Christians around the world. And number three, it's, a, it's an invitational demarcation between the church and the world. Now we'll attend to those in turn. Firstly, when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we acknowledge our communion with Christ, right? When we take the meal together with repentant and faithful hearts, trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, we are in communion with Jesus in union with Him by the act. But in what way is Jesus present? How is He present? In the present. How is He present in the present? How is He present to us, actually present when we partake in the Lord's Supper today by faith? Is He there spiritually? Is it a memorial? Is He there physically? Is His actual body and blood in the elements? Right? What way is He present? Well, Different traditions in the church have different viewpoints on that. We're not going to press those dramatically here, but let me just try to make some meaning in it from our perspective in the Presbyterian Church in America. All three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic, same vision, Gospels say in this report, Jesus says, this is my body, plainly. And some in the church have taken that literally for Jesus' actual body and blood being present to us in the Lord's Supper. But in other places in the New Testament, Jesus uses the Greek form of the verb to be, I me, in metaphorical ways. So in John's Gospel, for example, same verb, right? We just, uh, Dave and Nate just helped us get through John's Gospel. What a wonderful study that was. You remember the seven I am sayings, right? I'm the bread of life. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. Right? I'm the resurrection, I'm the life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I'm the true vine. Is Jesus really a vine? Is he a gate? Is he a wooden gate? Same word, same verb. So how do we decide? Right? In one way is it metaphorical, is in the next way it's literal, are they both the same? Well, let's go back to the words of institution that we typically recite here at NPC, we most commonly will go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for that, which many of you probably know. Let's go back starting in verse 23 there. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Continuing on in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. 
Now you think about it, why do, we, why do our communicants need to be educated and be able to make a public proclamation of faith and take the vows before we let them take communion? I mean, some people have just said, as soon as the kid can eat, you just put the elements in their mouth, right? I mean, why do we do that? It's a reasonable question we might have. What do we think? What do you think? And, and my point is not to uh, create conflict with other traditions. Other traditions believe differently, and that's fine. That's okay. But I also am committed to what we believe, and you know, I'm, I'm committed to I think that that's truthful. That it's biblical. And so don't, don't hear me as, I'm not trying to criticize other traditions here, um, but you have to basically make a stand. What is it? We have to all decide, right? Based on Scripture and the conviction of your conscience, what it is. How is Jesus present in the supper, you guys? Well, I hope this is a helpful analogy. Think about a kiss. It may seem like a weird analogy. Perhaps go back to your first kiss. You remember that? I, I mean, I do. I'm old. And I don't know. I was thinking about this today. Most of our communicants are, what, they're fifth graders or something? I didn't have my first kiss by fifth grade, but maybe some of them have. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. But think about your first kiss, right? No, I mean this seriously. Now think about your first kiss. Why do we do it? I mean, why do we do it, right? It's great, isn't it? It's great. Why do we do it? You know, if we didn't know any better, we'd think it was disgusting, if not unhygienic. <laughs> why, why does it matter to us? It matters because we have the keys to the language, you see. The action has a language without which it means nothing. Lock and lips. Well, that seems weird. What's the language of that? When you understand the language, it becomes real and vital to you as it makes meaning, right? You know, in our tradition, the Presbyterian Church in America, largely through the work and writing of John Calvin, we believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ. He's really there without his physical body and blood being present in the meal, right? Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 29, section 7 is helpful here. You'll love this language. I enjoy it, but... Worthy receivers outwardly, and I'm not making fun of it, believe me, this is, our, this is our constitution. I love the standards, so don't hear what I'm not saying. I'll get fired. <laughs> Worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament do then also inwardly by faith really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified." and all benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ, being then not corporally or carnally in, with, or under, as Luther would have us believe, and I grew up a Lutheran, right? Not in, with, and under the bread and wine, yet is really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are in their outward senses, right? It's really good, isn't it? God realizes, this is good, God realizes we are not simply intellectual beings. We're not simply minds, right? Being created in God's image and likeness, we not only are reasonable and contemplative and full of thoughts, but we're emotional and physical and spiritual beings. You know, we have affections and tastes 
emotions and senses, right? Which make meaning in life for us. The Lord's Supper has no meaning on its own. It means something because we have the entire reality of redemptive history in our hearts and the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and scintillate our senses about the truth about Jesus when we eat and drink together. What do we get? What do we get when we come to the Lord's Supper? We're not doing something for Him, but He does something profound for us. For in and with it, we receive grace that sanctifies and strengthens our souls in the grace of the Gospel. You see, friends, while Christ's body and blood are not in the meal, the meal is much more than a simple memorial. When we come to Christ in the supper, we aren't fundamentally doing something for Him. Rather, He's doing something for us. What is it? He's supplying needy souls that are tired and divided with the unifying, life-giving medicine of the grace of the Gospel. He's furnishing what we need from the resources of His sacrificial death on the cross for us. He's pledging to bring each and every one of us, all of His children, to the Messianic banquet where we'll enjoy in full what we only enjoy in part now. Life and blessing from, with, and in our Savior. And moving forward, you might, I mean, I'm trying to be as comprehensive as I can here, maybe to the detriment, I don't know, of my ability to articulate this message. But, you know, you might wonder, why do we fence the table? Why did Dave, Nate, and Chris, in the words that we provide before the words of institution and we set apart the elements and pray, why do we do that before we take them? Why do we say, if you're a member of this church, a communing member, or if you're a visitor who actually believes that Jesus Christ is the King and Lord of your life and you trust in Him for your salvation, you should partake in this meal together. But if you're not, if you don't believe that, then we'd ask you to abstain. Why do we do that? That's called fencing the table. Recall the words... From the after the words of institution that we typically read, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. What do we do? with that warning. How can any of us partake in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Rabbi John Duncan, Scottish guy number two today, he's a 19th century Scottish guy. We love the Scots, don't we? I mean, the origin of our denomination is Scottish. How can we not actually quote some Scottish theologians? Anyway, Rabbi John Duncan, he wasn't a rabbi. He was a, Chris, he was a Christian pastor in the church in Scotland. They called him rabbi because he was an expert in Hebrew grammar, and he was a missionary to Jews in Hungary, right? So as he was administering the Lord's Supper to his congregation, a particular woman would come up, you know, and they would come up, you know, everybody would come up and then he'd administer the sacrament and then they'd go back and sit down and another group would come up and so on. So she, this, this lady keeps coming up. And she comes up, she listens intently. By the end, she's crying, tears rolling down her face. Wouldn't partake in the supper, wouldn't take the elements, and she'd go back and sit down. Next week, or whenever they served it then, is Scottish in the 19th century. It could have been every, maybe every three months or so. She comes up, same thing. She's crying. So the next time she comes up, 
Tears are flowing. She won't take the elements. She stands up to go back and sit down. Rabbi John Duncan puts her back down. And he simply says, take it, woman. Take it, woman. It's for sinners. And she did. She did. Amen. So yes, this sacrament, thank God, is a meal for sinners. Or none of us could take it. Right? None of us could take it profitably. And yet the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a sacrament that involves and requires a certain discernment, right? We're, discern, we're to discern what we're doing. We should attend to it with an attitude and continence of uh, humility and repentance. Now, of course, the point is not to exclude people from the table. Nobody's worried in the ultimate, ultimate sense. But we who are unworthy in and of ourselves come to commune with Christ because of our need and because of His offer, right? But we're to come in a spirit of dependence, not arrogance, confessing our sins and trusting in Him alone for salvation. But make no mistake, friends, if we handle these sacred things in a hypocritical manner, God will not hold us guiltless. That's why we need to explore the significance of the Lord's Supper, which I hope we're doing right now. And yet again, Jesus tells us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him and eat with him and he with me. You see, Jesus and the Spirit of Christ have given us the means in which this text can become a reality. And when we do it, we partake in it together as a community of faith, telling each other and every one of us that we are in this together, that we're in unity that we're brothers and sisters. It breaks down barriers. It doesn't matter what you make. It doesn't matter what political persuasion you're in. It doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. We break down the barriers when we do it together. We come in unity as brothers and sisters in the one in Christ, you see. Isn't that a powerful thing? To think we here at NPC and Christians in Christ preaching, gospel-proclaiming churches all over the world are doing it together. Despite our differences, despite all the variable ways that we want to be torn apart, all the things in life that seek to divide, to criticize, expose, and deconstruct, the true church, the true church, the pillar and buttress of truth is in unity in Christ. And we exemplify that unity when we take the Lord's Supper together. When we do it together, we partake in the grace of our Lord as partners in and for the gospel, and we witness well to our divided world that's hungry for real truth and real life. Think about it. For those that come to NPC and see us partaking in this sacrament in unity together, in the love of the Savior of the world, what we're doing is we're showing them love when we do it together. We're showing them a better way. We're inviting them into a better story, a better reality, an experience that cannot be earned but simply must be accepted. When we do the Lord's Supper together, friends, we mark ourselves Christian by taking the Lord's Supper, yes, and by it we demarcate ourselves apart from the world in which we live. But when we do it together in love for our Lord, we invite the world to take and eat and take and drink with us. And so in the Lord's Supper, we realize the presence 
in the present, the communion with Jesus Christ, our union in the church, our unity in the church, and we demarcate ourselves as Christians for the world all the time, inviting other people in to believe. So we'll go to part three. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of God's promises for the future. The Bible begins and ends with dining together with God in the tree of life. And the prophets of the Old Testament speak of the kingdom of God as a banquet of rich food prepared by God Himself for us. So, for example, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, he ties his entire book, all 66 chapters together in this strange little section called the Apocalypse. Apocalypsis, if you will, chapter 24 to 27. Oh, it's awesome. And he does so with a metaphor of two cities, which one, you know, they meet, these two cities meet. One meets in judgment, the other one meets in salvation, which is the church, right? You might remember from Isaiah chapter 25, starting in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples. The veil that's spread over all nations will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. You know, and all of this begins to reach its fulfillment when we eat and drink with Christ Himself by faith today in order to finally sit down and eat and drink with Christ by sight when He returns the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the Lord's Supper not only looks back and recalls the original Passover and the redemption accomplished there for the people of God, it also looks forward to the eternal feast where our redemption will be complete. When we sit or stand at the Lord's table, we're basically participating in a dress rehearsal, aren't we? The words of institution remind us that we do this to proclaim Christ until He returns. The best is yet to come and is greatly anticipated as the promise of the marriage feast of the Lamb, the great ceremony of Christ and His bride, the church, to take place when Jesus returns, as the Spirit of Christ tells John in his apocalypse in Revelation. And so the supper itself is a proclamation in a sense. It's a preached word. For in it we all, the congregation of the church, proclaim the Lord's death, resurrection, and return. Past, present, future. When we come together to the table, we're serving one another. We're preaching to one another, friends, when we come to the table by faith, aren't we? We're serving one another and receive the gospel from each other. And we're inviting the watching world in the assembly to begin to participate in this with us, right? Don't, they, don't you want to participate, friend? We celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's not just a sign of what's already happened. It's also a sign and seal of what will happen in the future. In this way, the Lord's Supper is a foretaste of heaven where one day we'll see the bridegroom in all His glory as we participate ourselves as we see the church offered to Him in His perfection. We'll be together with the King in the full presence of God and be eating from the tree of life, which we find in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis. We'll be eating from that tree together forever. Three applications. In the Lord's Supper, we worship the Lord because He's absolutely faithful to His promises which we realize in Jesus Christ. And we are worshiping 
when we take the Lord's Supper together. Every time we take it, we're worshiping the Lord knowing full well that it's a gift of God that's provided for us to strengthen us in our faith by His sanctifying grace. Number two, knowing the Lord's sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a means of that sanctifying grace. We take the Lord's Supper in person, in the assembly of believers, as often as we can. Why would we not want to do that? I mean, I'm not, hey, I came from a tradition, you know, before we did it every month. And the Scottish Presbyterians would do it once every three months. The English Reformation Congregationalist and Reformed Church would do it once a year. So I'm not, but I'm just saying, knowing what this is and what it provides for us, don't we want to do it every week? Don't we want to get in the way of the means of grace every week? I do. I hope you do. So what that means is that we cannot neglect God's chosen means of grace or attend to them remotely or un unrepentantly. Lord's Supper is ordained by Christ, and we're commanded to do it in remembrance of Him. He doesn't demand a frequency, but He does command obedience. And now having a better understanding of the benefits of the Lord's Supper, aren't you excited to take it today? I am. I'm pumped for our communicants. I mean, that makes me happy to think that they might take the Lord's Supper and get in the way of the means of grace 500 times in their lifetime. Praise God. Three and finally, in the Lord's Supper, we look forward to the return of the King. Every time we take the meal, which encourages us in our dire cultural moment, right? Life is hard. What is going on? We all have moments of that, right? What's going on? Man, life is crazy, it seems like now. I don't remember a time like this. I'm an old man. Right? Every time we take the supper, we're saying to each other, the Lord's coming back. This is not our true and final home, right? God fulfilled His promises of old in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and He's true and steadfast and faithful, and He will return to consummate His kingdom for His glory and our eternal peace and joy. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast, and for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.